This podcast is brought to you by Benjamin, a workflow automation engine that allows advisors to focus on their clients rather than data management. Learn more at getbenjamin.com. Being really intentional about the culture that you want to have is incredibly important. Again, I'm a, I'm a sixth grade school teacher, right, who read a book on mutual funds, talked himself into what he thought was a sales job. You can train people to do the work and to understand the information. You can't make somebody who's not a good fit, somebody you want to spend eight or 10 hours a day with. Joining me from South Carolina and a big Clemson fan, Chip Munn, is with us today on Bridging the Gap. Chip Munn is the managing partner at Signature Wealth Group. Chip opens up the conversation with starting his career as a sixth grade English teacher, God bless you, Chip, and his journey to becoming the managing partner of his firm. We get into building the foundation of a successful firm. We talk about what went into it for him. We talk about the basis method and the ups and downs of finding the right people for your firm. Chip and I also dive into the future of his firm and where he plans to be in five years within the wealth management industry. For financial advisors out there, this is one of those conversations we can learn from our community. And Chip is one of those leading our community. This was a great conversation between you know two good old Southern boys. And you don't want to miss this because Chip has information and knowledge that we can all learn from, not only to better ourselves, but to better our firms and greater our impact on the industry. So let's jump into it with Chip Munn. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Chip Munn, welcome to Bridging the Gap, my friend. How are you? How's life? Thanks for taking time, man. How's everything going? Man, things are awesome, Matt. How about for you? Hey, I can't complain. Life's good. Life's good. I'm standing upright, and that's what's a win right there, right? That's a win every day of the week. I'm really stoked about this conversation. I think what you've done and built over at Signature Wealth Strategies is, is, is incredible. I'm loving to talk about or looking really forward to talking about you know, how you built the firm, right? I think that there's so much lessons we can learn, especially in this environment we're in today of you know, how to scale firms, how to, how to serve clients, how to do it in a scalable way. So we're going to dive into all that. I mean, you're running almost a $2 billion firm. There's nothing to shake a stick at with that. That's a big firm serving a lot of families. But before we get into that, I always like to ask, I always love to dive into how you got to this point that you're at, right? Running a $2 billion firm. And the way that I start that question is I always say, the 13-year-old Chip Munn, what did Chip Munn at 13 years old want to do? Was it run a wealth management firm at $2 billion? No, man. Chip, Chip Munn at 13 years old didn't know what wealth management was. And, and now, in fairness, that was a long time ago. I don't know that wealth management was technically probably a, a term back then. Uh, at 13, I probably still thought that I'd go to the NFL. You know, I, I was a, an athlete in, in high school, so really enjoyed sports. Actually, uh, ended up, so my, my formal trainings in elementary education. So I was a sixth grade school teacher. So right out of college, I taught uh, sixth grade. I taught English and South Carolina history because I'm from South Carolina. So how I got here was really kind of a combination of a couple of things. So teaching school, one of the things I learned pretty quickly, Matt, was that it's a, a situation, particularly in public school, particularly in South Carolina, where it's really hard to, to make change in the system. Now, I, I didn't know that that was going to be super important to me. But I learned pretty quickly also that it was hard to make 
a change in something that big, it, it also, uh, discipline's really hard. When you're 22 and you're in a room of, you know, 30, 12 year olds, that's a tough go. And so by Christmas time, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew what I wasn't going to do. And that was teach school a second year. So I, I knew I wasn't going to do that. Thought I wanted to go to law school. And as it turns out, University of South Carolina, which was the only law school in the state at the time, not super excited about having Clemson elementary ed majors in law school. So that that dream was uh, thrashed. And, and a big part of the reason I wanted to go to law school was because my family literally lost the family farm to the death tax. So my granddad's estate plan and philosophy was it's mine until I die. Until then, don't ask me about it. Never had a lot of planning. Died in the early 90s when the estate tax exemption amount was only 600 grand. We had a 2,000 acre family farm that we had to sell in order to pay the $975,000 in estate taxes. And so I thought I wanted to be kind of an estate planner. So when I didn't get accepted to law school, uh, my wife didn't want to move. Then uh, honestly, I just kind of started doing some research into what are some other things I could do. Stumbled into being a financial advisor, kind of with an interest in planning. And of course, at the time, this would have been 1998, it was a sales job. So came in within a month or two, I had brought in all my friends and family's money. I was 23 years old, kind of looking around and didn't really enjoy the investment side of things. Like it just wasn't a passion for me. Really loved the planning and fortunately had another advisor and his dad. Uh, now my partner, Scott, we've been together 24 years and the two of them were investment focused. Planning was not their thing. I kind of approached them and, and in, in an effort of self-preservation said, hey, how about you guys do the investments and I'll do the planning and 24 years later, everything we've built has been around that kind of nucleus of one of us does uh, or, or did the planning and the other one did the investments for the same group of clients. And, and from there, uh, essentially, we've scaled out whether it's services or uh, in our practice or kind of in, as part of our larger group, everything has been a kind of that Dan Sullivan unique ability um, zone of genius. I've heard it said a lot of ways, but we didn't call it that, that back then. I just knew what I didn't like to do, or I didn't think people would trust me to do again in my early twenties and planning wasn't a passion of theirs. And so it was just, it was a good fit from the get go. And we've, we've really just used that nucleus as kind of the model that we've built from. I love that. I, you know, you're talking about starting off as a school teacher and I know you did it for one year, but that, that desire to teach, is such a powerful skill when it comes to wealth management because education is a majority of what we try to get across in wealth management. So I'm sure that, you know, that focus of how to go about and educating, even if it's young, young kids, educating adults on financial literacy is such a needed topic that you need to have that skill. And I think there's a lot of people that try to force it down to their clients as opposed to educate their clients on why it is, what it means and what it means to them. Have you seen some correlation there between the lessons that you learned in school and that you took into the classroom, find their way into the office, talking with clients and families about retirement and financial planning? Oh, absolutely. Well, and especially, of course, uh, on the barbell ends of my career so far, especially, right, because early on, late 90s, 
was kind of when the seminars were popular, not that they aren't for some people now, but that was the thing. And so getting up in front of a room full of people, it is much easier to talk to a group of potential retirees than it is a rambunctious group of 12 year olds. So, I mean, that was simple, the, the getting up and talking. And, and of course now, right, where we're all in a content driven kind of world, the, the idea of coming up with and being comfortable with content is there's been big correlations of that. I think the other big part and, and the area where I feel like I've had some success is particularly uh, focusing in, in my teaching kind of career, if you will. It's hard to call one year a career. But in the training and all, the, I think the biggest part of it was taking complex things and trying to make them simple. And I think that sometimes you, you mentioned the industry. I think we, we over-talk people that curse the knowledge, the assumption that everybody knows all the things that we do. And I find even with, with our advisors, Sometimes when I'm, I'm doing joint things with them, one of the things I like to do is press pause, rewind and restate something in a way that, again, an eighth grader, a sixth grader can understand it because a lot of the stuff that we do and that we deal with every day, it's just you watch people who come into the industry even. It's a completely new and different language. And we take that for granted. So, yeah, I think that there's a, a big or, or the tax law is changing and you have to go in and understand everything and then come out in such a way that you can explain it to people in a way that they can understand when you know, they're a doctor seeing patients all day. Like they're, they're not they're not trying to do all the stuff that we do. They just need somebody to come in and explain it to them in a way that they can understand and buy into yeah, I love that curse of knowledge concept, right? But I think that that's what makes, and I want to dig into this with you, is that that's what makes it such a challenge for firms to create scale and efficiency because they've been doing the process for so long that that's the curse of knowledge because they don't remember the intricacies that are needed when you bring someone else new. You assume that they know what they're doing. So we're going to div- dig into that. But I want to start with this idea because you talked about it earlier, how y'all started your firm. You know, you're like, I want to focus on planning. Your partners are going to focus on the investment. Focus on what your genius is, right? What, as you look back to building this successful firm that you have and you scaled it, how do you suggest to those that are maybe thinking about leaving a wirehouse and go starting their own or maybe coming into the industry, what are some of those things that they need to think about to build this, the foundation for a successful firm going forward that you've learned over the 20 plus years that you've been doing it? Sure. Uh, Well, I would, if it was, especially for an existing advisor, I I think basically you take the same process that you would with uh, a client and you apply it to your business. I I mean, so for me, I learned many years ago what what the, uh, the folks back then at PSB training talked about the A to B planning process, point A to point B. And really, that's that's the way that I try to do everything. I, I think so. Ultimately, right. The question that I would have is, why are you building the business? What is it that you want it to build? Because ultimately, your business, your practice, ought to be built from the inside out. I, I think that we all, most people at this point, hopefully, have read the E Myth by Michael Gerber. And and a big part of it is you want your business to serve you as you serve your clients, 
not the other way around. So you want to, if you want to be, especially if you want to be independent, be a business owner, you want to own the business, not have the business on you. And so I think that starting with the end in mind and saying, what do I, what I even want out of this? Because you and I, Matt, might want completely different things. But I, th- I think ultimately, right, you work from the inside out. So you start with you. I, I, I view this as concentric circles. So you, you have you, you have your family, you have your team, you have your clients, then you have the community that you're in. And so it, it's kind of almost like a bullseye. You, you work from the inside out and it needs to serve all of those people because this is a, it's a service business. And I heard somewhere and I, I don't know, I, I'd attribute it if I knew to whom it, it, it should be attributed, but you can't pour from an empty cup. And I think that it's important to understand, again, that it, it starts with you as the owner or as the leader, but also to understand that to lead is to serve. And so you're serving your team and your family, you're serving your clients. And I think we really have to take on a big part of that. I think the other thing, last two things probably that I would touch on when you start looking at building the foundation are gonna be your vision. And I'm not talking about all the grandiose stuff is uh, what are you really trying to do like you don't have to write it out and it doesn't have to be fancy and you don't have to show it to anybody else Joe, what are you really trying to do and, and then the other thing is who do you want to do it with i think that's a big the the greatest blessing in my professional life is my relationship with my partner and the fact that we've been together 24 years we've been through i i joke we've been through uh, we've had four wives 12 houses uh, and he's never moved and he's still married to the first one. Um, but he and I have been together for a really long time. And it's because I enjoy who I work with. And when you're, when you're building a practice, again, if we're going back to talking about if you wanted to leave somewhere and start your own thing or if you were starting from scratch, is you spend too much time with people to work with people you don't like, whether that's a client or a, or a partner or a team member. Being really intentional about the culture that you want to have is incredibly important. Again, I'm a, I'm a sixth grade school teacher, right, who read a book on mutual funds, talked himself into what he thought was a sales job. You can train people to do the work and to understand the information. You can't make somebody who's not a good fit somebody you want to spend eight or ten hours a day with. Yeah, I think people lose focus of how important – that is right the why you're building a business and also i think that too many people try to change people right change people to fit their mold and you can't just you can't change people people are who they are you can train people to do certain activities but their their morals their 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 values like that is them and um if you don't like it then they're not the right ones for you and i think that that's so important i'm curious to you because you started this business 24 25 years ago a lot's happened in 24, 25 years. You know, when you started, I would say that probably, you know, the idea of an RIA was just starting to come up, right? And an RIA, and that was like a sales pitch, again, pitch against the wirehouses. And it was like this push to get independent. And now I look at the kind of the industry and it's like, we are in an industry where it's all about M&A. We've got so much private equity money coming in. It's about valuations. And when you think about why you're starting a business, a lot of people are getting in it for the wrong reasons because they see the future payoff potential that this business is providing. I'm curious to your your feelings of, you know, just 
beliefs of what's going on in this industry and what do you think the future of this industry is, right? With the pendulum that swung just in your time of being in it, where do you believe it is now and where do you think it goes in the future five, 10 years from now? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I, I think that, you know, you're right. We've been through a lot of change, uh, everything going back to discount brokers and they were going to be the death of the financial advisor because it was going to be cheap and free. Now the talk is fee compression. You know, there's always extenuating circumstances. I, I think that what, you know, in terms of the industry right now, I mean, I think that all of the business models that we see work for certain people. So if we go back to the the why, you know, why, why do you even want to do this? There are plenty of people with lifestyle practices that if I were wired that way, I would be, you know, you mentioned we're close to $2 billion. You can make plenty of money with $75 million and, you know, a great client base and a great life. Even at, at $2 billion, I was having a conversation earlier today with our chief operating officer, uh, and we were talking about somebody who was bigger than we were, right? There's always somebody bigger than you. But we talked about the fact that we didn't want to be in a bunch of debt. In our case, we didn't want to take on a bunch of private equity. And, and these folks who are a lot bigger than us, the last time we saw them, didn't look very happy. And I'm happy, you know, uh, and, and I think that makes a big difference. I think that we're continuing to see a transition towards, again, more and more and more comprehensive advice. I think that, in my opinion, that can only be delivered well by a human. So I I don't see any future in which there's not the human component of financial advice. I think there's lots of automation and scale and and operational things that we can use technology for. Technology is a great thing. I don't think it's going to replace people any more than the discount broker replaced the, again, financial consultant or whatever the industry called the rest of us, uh, financial planners, whatever. I I don't think, but there are lots of business models, right? So you could have the, the solo kind of practice. You can be part of a wirehouse if that's your thing. And and by that, I mean, if you don't want to deal with, you're not looking to build a brand. You're not, I think all those models are viable for the right people. I think what you're starting to see though, and it's exciting for me because our wheelhouse ultimately is helping growth-minded advisors from 50 million to 250 million who, who want to grow. And really that's our focus because we've done it. So, so we've, We've kind of worked through some of that, but it's, you know, what you're seeing in that space is the measure of independence, right? Because you can go from the wirehouse to the independent broker-dealer model to the hybrid to the RIA, and, and they all have different levels of independence. And again, going back to kind of what I said earlier, if you look at it in the same lens that you would if you were looking at a client's financial plan, what are you solving for, I think, gives you a big uh, indicator as to where is best for you. We personally, earlier this year, acquired a tax practice and are in the process of integrating tax planning and compliance work into what we do. We are, uh, and, and I, again, I think that's an area where historically, right, the our industry has feared the accountants kind of coming for us uh, yeah, we just kind of have viewed it the other way. It's like, well, why can't we, again, I, um, we're not going going for accountants, but why can't we just 
move ourselves into that space. And, and again, that's an outside business activity from our broker dealer, which is Raymond James. But again, I think that's the more for fewer has certainly made a lot of sense. And, and I, I think that for a lot of us who, if comprehensive is the way you want to go, I think a lot of those ancillary service lines, if you will, or, or areas to serve are going to be really important. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think that the idea that the human is going away is is a false headline to scare people and, and drive clicks. I don't think that the human is going away. There's tons of statistics behind it. Psychology of money just shows that people aren't going to be able to do it on their own and there's not enough technology to keep people from being silly with their money. I think that that's just the nature of it. But the, the other thing that you were going on is this idea. I love that y'all bought a tax firm. I think that that's such an innovative way to go because although as simple as it is and intuitive as it sounds, not many people are doing it, but we're going to have to add more value. That's what technology has done, right? It's it's commoditized parts of our business that we used to sell as our main value, which was investment management. I mean, we just, we can't argue that. And so you're going to have to add more value. I, I think that one challenge that I've always talked with advisors about that they seem to always have is the difficulty to move in showing the value they provide. Because they, they're showing the value of just investment management's easy, right? Look, this is what I did. This is what I generated. Boom, boom, boom. Very quantitative, et cetera. How do y'all think about providing, providing the value or the analysis of value to the clients when it comes to some ancillary things? I mean, taxes and estate planning and everything of that nature so that clients maybe devalue the investment management and increase value in the planning side, which is more touchy-feely sometimes and more planning-centric and there's not a, a quantitative side of it. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting anymore uh, how little I talk about investment management. And the I think that a big part of that for us, Matt, is having a systematized kind of process of how it is that you're going to engage a client. Now, I have had many clients who, if we didn't put them through the first part of the process, and that's on us, right, that uh, all of a sudden you're starting to focus on things that, that just aren't a tremendous kind of the first realm of priority. But I, I think the biggest part is putting people through a planning process from the very beginning with the focus on, again, like we're talking about, what's point B? Where are we trying to get to? I think our industry has still historically, going back to when I was trained, wanted to ask people how much risk they were comfortable with. And then they would expose you to the maximum possible risk that you thought that you could take. And that's a completely idiotic way to do it, in, in my opinion. The, the, the answer is, if you want to get from point A to point B, how fast does the money have to grow and how little risk can you take in order to do that. And, and I think that for us, a big part has been putting them through the planning process, explaining and getting to the end of how the, the planning process works. And then by the way, we're, gonna, we're going to use investment vehicles, uh, again, in a lot of cases, whether it's managed accounts or mutual funds or whatever, however, we, we, we do a, a fair amount of discretionary management, but people over time, I think that clients become a lot like their advisors and people focus on what it is that you teach them to focus on. And so we've made a big point of focusing people on the plan, focusing people on the process 
And uh, I think that a lot of those commoditized things kind of fall by the wayside. Uh, they're there, but but people just want to know, am I going to be able to do the things that I want to do? Just make me feel good. Make me feel comfortable, Amen. right? And I, yeah. I love that idea. Lead with your value. Lead with the process. And people buy into that. I think too often people lead with the tools. Investment management is a tool and it's not the process, right? And I think that you lead with the process. And y'all follow a process that I saw called the basis method. I'm curious to hear about, first off, how you built this idea, this basis method, and, sure. and dive into how y'all utilize it to, you know, to help achieve the growth and everything that y'all are seeing as well. Sure. So um, what I did was I I would have a lot of advisors ask me how we did what we did. So we founded Signature Wealth Strategies in 2016. We came out of a regional broker dealer. We had about $280 million. Now we're at about $2 billion. As we're recording this, it's the middle of 2022. So, And so folks were like, how did you do that? And so over time, I'm a big acronym person. So basis, if I'm being honest, I kind of worked with the words. But it was basically my way of putting together what I felt like the process was that we had used to get to here. And again, here isn't the end. It's, It's just where we are currently. But what basis stands for, Matt, is build, attract, systematize, invest, and scale. And those are, I think, the going back to what we were talking about earlier, those are the, the five kind of phases and in order, right? So first, you got to build it. You got to determine what your culture is. Why are you even doing it? Because building it starts with you. What is that? Second is attracting. None of us can be in business for very long without any clients. So determining who your ideal client is. And then secondarily, in an ideal world, now we could we could come back and talk about how you do this in an existing practice. But uh, again, looking at it just systematically, then you also have to determine what what kind of team do you need to be able to serve those clients. So, for example, if my ideal client was a, a high income person or a business owner, then having a tax practice associated or, or it, whether that's that we own them or that we just work in close partnership with would make an awful lot of sense because that's the team I need to serve my ideal client. So, and you have to be able to attract those people. Uh, this will shock you hard to attract people into wanting to be an accountant. Okay. <laughs> Nobody listening to this probably, I, I doubt we have many accountants. Uh, well, I you doubt just, many you just people. made, you know, you just made half of our listener base go away, but other than that, we're good. I'm, oh, I'm just... uh, good. Uh, <laughs> listen, I think it's a very, uh, obviously, I think it's a very valuable service. But what I'm what I'm saying is from my experience now, as somebody who bought a tax practice, it's hard. Uh, if we think that we have a problem with new talent in the uh, in the wealth management business, it's, a, it's, it's probably twice as hard in accounting. And so, but again, that trying to attract the right teams, incredibly important. And then you have to have systems. And you asked, how do you develop the systems? Uh, one of the best things that happened to us is Zoom and the full adoption. Now, we have 15 offices. So we have a distributed kind of workforce, if you will. So we were into Zoom earlier than the pandemic, but the pandemic made it so that everybody was into Zoom. And so even the people on our team who didn't care for it now can do a screen record. I mean, what a simple thing to do. Just 
show your screen on Zoom and hit record, and you don't even have to to uh, to write it all down. Somebody else can write it all down. You just go through it and show them the video. And, and so there are a lot of really easy ways now to kind of put that together. And that's what allows you to scale. I, I like to talk about the um, Siegfried and Roy versus the, the Blue Man group. You know, you go to the Blue Man group, you don't know who's in the blue suit. There, there are like 60 blue men. You just have to be, you know, taller than 5'10 and below 6'2". You have to be a certain build, but they're replaceable because they have systems. And, and whereas when, I forget whether it was Siegfried or Roy got mauled by the tiger, they shut down. I mean, you, you can't do it. It wasn't called two men and a tiger. And so it, it makes a big difference. And I think that's where systems make it repeatable. And then investing, you have to invest in your relationships, both with your team, but also with your clients and then scaling. And scale is either inorganic, right? So you talked about M&A or organic and, and recruiting more of the ideal clients. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that just shows having this mentality of a firm that everybody can get around, right? I think it's so valuable. It's not talked about enough of having a common language inside of an organization, right? Everybody's speaking the same language, everybody understanding the same way. And this basis idea is that. And I, I, I wonder how it led to you know you creating structure within your firm. I'm always curious with firms that are running high growth organizations all about their operating systems internally, right? How are they, are they running on EOS? Are they running on something else? How are they continuing to, to keep that traction going? Because in a high growth organization, you have to have some accountability. You have to be speaking the same language. Basis is part of it. But do you all use any other aspects to create structure within the firm to create that high growth infrastructure? Well, I, I think, again, a big part of it is getting the right team. You mentioned traction and EOS. We, we run a kind of a modified version uh, of that. In fact, one of the best books that I've read is Rocket Fuel by Gino Wickman and another author. And it was fantastic. Changed changed my life probably five years ago because the first thing, uh, or pretty quickly after that, I found an integrator. And so I mentioned earlier, our COO came on board. And one of the things you have to do really quickly, I think if you want to, to grow is to realize, at least for me, there's a big difference between a leader and a manager. And I'm not a manager. You know, I like to consider myself a leader. Other people might disagree, but but I also knew what I wasn't good at. And so we brought in professional management that used to be part of the executive team at our old broker-dealer, somebody who could come in and implement some of the systems. So you can have a big vision, but if you if you can't get the the pieces to work together. And that's a completely different skill. So in that rocket fuel book, they talk about the visionary and the integrator and how it's a two piece puzzle. And so I think a big part of getting the systems right is quite honestly, if you're not the person who's into systems and who's into accountability, find somebody who is and as quickly as possible, get that person in that role so that they, because again, it's easy to agree to the fact that you need it. For some of us, particularly financial, entrepreneurially minded financial advisors, it's hard to do. So finding the right person's clutch. I, I knew I liked you for a reason because we relate on a lot of things and as well as manager. I'm not a great manager, right? I like the lead. I just know I'm not a good manager and you bring in the right people around you to help you with it, be, to take away from your deficiencies. Now, 
Before I ask my final two questions, I, I just want to ask, what's the future? Uh, what's what's the future of signature wealth strategies? Where where are y'all? Where do you see yourselves in five years? And and what are some of y'all strategic goals that you're focused on pushing forward with that you're willing to share with the world? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think that the first thing is uh, is less quantifiable, right? Is that we're not interested in being the biggest. We're interested in doing what we can to be the best. And, and I think that that's, frankly, man, it's a moving target, right? If you had asked me three years ago if we'd buy a tax firm, uh, it might have been something that would interest me. But uh, I don't know that we'd have done that. We don't have necessarily a a growth target in terms of assets under management and things like that. We want to grow at a reasonable play, pace with good people. We, we want to ma- maintain our culture, our quality of life. I, I think that that's, that's a big part of why people join an organization is because again, our, our concept, right, is independent, but not alone. It is the, we can do things, you know, what is it they say? If you want to go uh, fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I think that that's really kind of our mentality. So it's, it's less about getting big. It is about kind of that old go where the puck is headed type thing. And, and again, right now we see that as being more integrated, tax integrated planning, uh, again, kind of doing the comprehensive stuff. And, and again, I do think that ultimately you're going to have to continually evaluate your business model to determine what the right fit is for you in that kind of continuum of, of all the different things that we talked about. I love it. I love it. Chipmon, you have been uh, gracious with your time, man. Before I let you go, I've got to ask you the two questions I ask all my guests because these are conversations to help me learn. I love to learn. I hope people that listen learn from each of these conversations. I know I did today. One of the ways we like to learn is by reading books from smart people. So I'm always curious. You mentioned a few of them, Rocket Fuel, E-Myth, et cetera, already in this conversation. But outside of those and outside of your book, which we didn't mention, which I want to mention, Let Leap Before You Look, which I think was published in 19 or 18, is a great book. Outside of your own book, which people should go buy and get, what's one book you think everybody should go out and, and read? You know, I... um. I'd go with above and beyond the ones that I mentioned. I'd say The Gap in the Game by Dan Sullivan and uh, and Benjamin Hardy. And they also did Who Not How, so that's a twofer. But both of those books are great. And in particular, though, for me, I learned a lot from The Gap in the Game, Matt, because I think that as entrepreneurs, as driven people, in my case, as somebody who considers themselves to be a visionary, I'm always looking through uh, a telescope, right? I, I'm looking way on down the road, and they talk in the book about how being perfection being like the horizon. It doesn't matter how far you walk, you're never going to get there. And and it's only when you look back towards where you started that you can see how far you've come. And if your if your measuring stick is perfection, you're never going to be happy. But if you always measure yourself kind of towards the gain, how far you've come, uh, I find that, that makes my life happier. And, and every now and then I have to remind myself of that. But yeah, I, I think that's just a, it's a good way to live, man. Staying out of the gap and focusing on the game. Gosh, that is so true, man. It's uh, it's hard to do, but if you're able to do it, it's so powerful. 
in that way. The last question I always ask, and this comes from Barron Conferences because I loved what they did, and they always ask, what's one piece of actionable advice people can take away from this conversation? So I ask you, what's one piece of actionable advice you think that people should try to take away from our conversation here today? Sure. So I will, um, I'll share a quote. It's actually from my wife. Uh, I told her that I was always going to steal this, but um, one of the things she talks a lot about is how we're the thermostat in our relationships. And of course, the thermostat is what sets the temperature in the room. It's not the thing that, uh, it's not a thermometer, right? That reads it and tells you what the temperature is. And and I think that uh, I've learned a lot from that. Be the thermostat. If it's going to be a conversation, you know, people are all about energy. And I think that, that we have the ability to dramatically influence ourselves, our team, our community, our clients, by focusing on being the thermostat and and deciding what the energy and the temperature is going to be in in, in any interaction that we have. So I think I'd go with that. I love that. Chip Munn, you are the man. And I want to continue to follow all your successes. I continue to wish you great success with Signature Well Strategies. How can others continue to follow all the great things you're doing? I know you've got a podcast. I know you've got a book. I know you've got all social media. So what are the best ways for people to follow you, stay in touch with you and continue to learn from you? Sure. Yeah. So uh, if anybody wants to know more about the basis method, I actually put together a course. You can just email me, chip at signaturewealth.com, check chipmon.com, signaturewealth.com, kind of any of those. Uh, I'd like to think that if uh, if you just C-H-I-P-M-U-N-N, kind of like the old chipmunk song, you know, that if you throw it into Google, if you don't find the race car driver, you'll find me. And uh, yeah, I, I just, I enjoy talking to other advisors. So I'd welcome, if I can be of any help or be a resource, please don't hesitate to reach out. Awesome. Stay well, my friend, be well. And thank you again for your time here on Bridging the Gap. It was an awesome conversation. You too, brother. Enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 